computer. Okay, and we're live. I'm gonna switch to gallery view because I actually think that that's, that's better because everyone can see both of us at, at both times and our, our reactions and that kind of thing. So, so I have to behave um, myself, got it. Yes, exactly. So uh, um, trip here, uh, this is a, a conversation on uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, the great philosopher and theologian. Um, the purpose of the video is um, Sam on our channel has um, has started an open letter with me on divine simplicity and the Trinity, and so I will be going a lot into Aquinas in in the future in terms of responding to that and and arguing some of these things about divine simplicity and what that is in the Trinity. And Eric is actually gonna gonna um, kind of co-write that response with me. Um, so, but before that, just for the people who might be interested in these topics, um, we wanted to do kind of a primer video, or at least like a setting of Thomas Aquinas, who he was, why is he important? Like, why do I, a Protestant living in Seattle, um, care uh, what Thomas Aquinas says and his uh, philosophical and theological system? Um, what were his influences? What were some of the, you know, and just set the stage for why we think it's important to talk about these things in what we'll call Thomistic terms. So, um, Eric, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Deacon Eric Seitz. I've uh, been studying to be a Catholic priest since 2011, and I'm finally getting very close. I'm a transitional deacon, and I will be ordained to the Catholic priesthood on August 8th in Fargo, North Dakota. Um, while I was in seminary, I, uh, I really enjoyed uh, the intellectual formation I was given, uh, especially uh, liked any time that we got to bring Thomas Aquinas into this. And I just kind of stumbled across this Discord uh, thing via Paul Vanderclay. And um, yeah, I've just kind of put my uh, two cents in whenever I thought I could. And uh, now I'm making this video with uh, Mr. Tripp. So yeah, sounds good. Um, and how did you, or did you find Paul Vanderclay on YouTube or Twitter or how the, okay. YouTube via his gotcha. Jordan Peterson video, like gotcha. everybody else. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, you're a Peterson fan then. I, yeah, I'm an admirer fan. Uh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Cool. Okay. So uh, the format of this, uh, Eric and I was talking about it. I will, I will mainly be the question asker here um, just because he's, he's actually been training in this. Um, uh, and, and we'll see where it goes. Obviously, for those who have seen any videos of mine, I'm, I'm an opinionated person, so I will, ha I will have thoughts as well, but um, it'll be primarily that. So could you just walk us through Thomas Aquinas? Who was he? Where'd he come from? Like, why is he important? Why are we talking about him? Why are we, why are we in 2020 doing a video about this guy um, and why we think he's important? Right, so uh, Thomas Aquinas, born circa 1225 in Italy, uh, in the kingdom of Sicily, um, came from a noble family. And um, yeah, so obviously we're looking at 13th century Italy, we're thinking this is really Catholic country, right? I mean, you know, 312, the Edict of Constantine, uh, you had the Papal States, you had, you know, perhaps the uh, peak of medieval Catholic culture at this time. Um, and so he's born into that. And I think J.K. Chesterton put this uh, well in, I can't remember if it was his uh, history of Thomas, or his biography of Thomas Aquinas or his biography of St. Francis, but Catholicism had been around long enough to become old at that point. Mm -hmm. You know, um, he was farther separated from Christ than we are from It'd be about uh, Augustine than than what would like Chaucer? I don't know. Like think that right. that far back. Um, right. That's uh, that's about how, how far uh, things were. Um, he started his training as a uh, as a uh, theologian very early with the Benedictines. Um, he went to a Benedictine school at that time, and uh, always had that interest in theology. There's a story of him being like four years old and asking his, his nurse, um, what is God? Uh, so that was just kind of the, the, very the level he was question, operating at. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, 
So um, his family was going to set him up as the uh, abbot of Monte Cassino, the big Benedictine uh, uh, monastery there. And that would have just been a perfect, you know, semi-political po appointment. But yeah, you know, he's a good kid. He'll make a good monk. Um, and he went off and joined the Dominicans. A, uh, you know, they, they looked like a venerable order to us at the time, but they were brand new. There was some Spaniard who was preaching against Albigensians who was uh, forming this order. They didn't own um, property the same way that they, uh, the Benedictines did. They were mendicant orders, so they were, relied on uh, alms of other people to fund their mission. And their family actually opposed this. Um, and so uh, the story goes, it's a, little, it's a little fuzzy in the details, but his family locked him up in the top of a tower to try and convince him to change his mind. Right. <laughs> um, and he just sat there patiently waited his family out and then eventually got to go uh, join the Dominicans um, and uh, ended up, I think, teaching at the University of Paris. Yeah, yeah, that was yep. his kind of, but he was, did most of his education in Naples. Yep. Why was he called the Dumb Ox? Oh, um, so there's this, uh, he was a very quiet man to begin with. He, uh, he didn't, uh, you know, perhaps spend as much time socializing as his other uh, students. And he didn't speak up much during class. Um, but his teacher, St. Albert the Great, also a theologian of uh, some renown, um, you know, people were talking about this, you know, Thomas Aquino kid. And he was like, someday that that, that dumb ox is going to roar. Um, he was also a very, uh, so that's dumb right there. And then he was also just a very large man. Um, you know, people debate as to whether he was fat or whether he was just built big, and it, yeah, it doesn't you, you matter. Have, you have the stories of Aquinas with him cutting like a circle out of the table so that he could sit in it because he was fat. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was yeah. apocryphal or, or whatever. But. I don't think anybody took his dimensions, and it doesn't no, really matter um, because yeah. um, even if he was just, you know, big in the shoulders and had a little extra weight on him, um, you know, he just kind of made that impression that he was bigger than average when he was uh, mm -hmm. coming down the street at you. Uh, okay. So, hence the dumb ox. So, how did he become such a large influence on Catholic theology? Like, how did well, that see, come about? It's really funny how that came about. Um, so, every religious order at that time wanted to have their own kind of teaching, right? And so, you'd have you know, the Franciscans, they had Bonaventure, or they had, uh, so you had Bonaventurists, or you had Scotists, or you had uh, Occamists, and then, you know, um, the Augustan hermits, they would have their own theologians and stuff. And so Thomas Aquinas's influence was really kind of only in the Dominican order for sort of centuries after, um, after his writings. And so you don't see him immediately having that much of an impact, right? It's like he got drowned out by kind of all the theological noise in the universities of Europe at this time. It was uh, Cardinal Cajetan, uh, famous for his encounter with Luther in the 16th century, who wrote the first major commentary on the Summa Theologiae and um, who started using Thomas Aquinas as a primary textbook. But immediately after that happens, what happens is the Protestant Reformation. And so you've got the, the Counter-Reformation going against that. And it's sort of all hands on deck on that. Um, and then you jump straight from that into the modern period. So all of a sudden, the universities are all focused on you know, Descartes. They're focused on Spinoza, Hobbes, Humes, that whole modern project. Um, so it really uh, isn't until the 19th century that in Catholic thought, uh, Thomas Aquinas really starts gaining traction outside of the Dominican order. And uh, there was a very influential priest, I can't remember his name now, but he was uh, hugely influential during the 19th century as sort of a uh, revival of Thomas Aquinas. And he helped draft a lot of the Vatican I documents, which you can see a lot of Thomistic thought in there. And by the time of the Leo Thirteenth. Um, he was uh, the Pope at the end of the 19th century, and he made a law that seminarians should be taught the theology of Thomas Aquinas. And uh, 
you know, if you wanted to say on one issue or another later disagree or have your own take or your own interpretation, it's not like that was strictly forbidden, but right. he wanted Thomas Aquinas to be held up as, as the theologian of the church precisely because this is kind of my take on that is his, his method hmm. as being the most Catholic method. You know, maybe you don't have to follow every single conclusion he ever had. You know, certainly Pius IX didn't when he uh, declared the uh, Immaculate Conception a dogma. Um, and you can find places where, where Thomas Aquinas says that uh, Mary was not conceived without sin. So we don't have to be slavish disciples of him. But there's something about the way that he's thinking, which is uniquely Catholic, in which if that can get embedded in a seminary and in his formation will not only make him a better theologian, but a better pastor and a better preacher and all the things that go along with that. Um, gotcha. So, so it, go ahead. Yeah, I no, know. I was going to say, so um, let's, uh, yeah, so let, let's hover there for a little bit. He's called, you know, a doctor, uh, you know, of the, you know, kind of, what is it? A doctor of the Catholic? Doctor of the church. Doctor, doctor of the church. Of the church. Yeah. So what does that mean? Yeah. So uh, doctor is just the medieval teacher for, uh, uh, medieval word, Latin word for teacher. Um, so, you know, when you go to your doctor, it might be easier to, more accurate to say you're going to see a physician. Um, mm -hmm. So I, we still have PhDs, that's a doctorate in philosophy. Um, so it's just a teacher. Uh, the Catholic Church will hold up certain individuals teaching as um, of universal importance, right? So basically, you know, Every saint that we have writings on, they have teachings, right? Uh, but the church recognizes that some pe some saints have uh, teaching that needs to go beyond just their their time, their place. Um, so one of my favorite saints, Saint John Vianney, we have some of his sermons recorded. Um, they're very French. They're very 19th century, um, mm -hmm. and what he would say made a lot of sense in France. The 19th century, yep. uh, but his, his his specific teaching in his homilies is not like something that everybody needs to study, you know. But when you get to Saint Augustine, Saint Thomas Aquinas, you get Saint Alphonsus, you get um, what Saint Albert the Great, Saint Jerome, Saint Ambrose, you know, it's like okay, these guys they contributed something which moved the ball, the football forward for the whole church. Mm -hmm. um, gotcha. Not just this time, this place. Right. So, so he, he's a teacher of the church that we feel like uh, that the Catholic Church feels like um, stands the test of time and has something kind of more, more universal, more eternal, if we want to use that term, uh, to mm -hmm. to say mm -hmm. about things than than even your average, you know, your average priest or Christian who might say something that is helpful or useful or or even mm -hmm. correct. Um, mm -hmm. um, this person is is doing something that's that's different, that's more broad, kind of like mm -hmm. not to this extent, but like a, a parable of Jesus or something like that. That's got like this kind of like this longer term application that can that can happen. So let's let's talk a little bit about. You mentioned like one of the reasons that you think that he. Um, he's he he meets that criteria is uh his methodology um mm -hmm. like the the way that he goes about things and and why it's so important that everyone in the catholic order needs to needs to study his theology can you talk about that what is what is his methodology uh, the scholastic method like what is this okay uh scholasticism can be defined uh, as a project with two goals one is to organize Catholic beliefs in a systematic way. And the other one is to offer rationalization for the, or not rationalization, but rational arguments in defense of Catholic faith. And I think um, the reason that uh, Thomas Aquinas is sort of a model for this is the way he's able to balance faith and reason and and show the harmony between those two uh he really took um uh i think it's uh where's his name where's his name augustine and in his tradition we have uh the ontological argument anselm anselm uh really yeah. took his dictum um i believe in order that i may understand it he just sort of embodied that in a very consistent way. 
Um, and so that's why I think uh, a very useful way to understand Thomas Aquinas is to just look at who he's citing when he can. So uh, if you read through uh, something like the, the Summa Theologiae, you just got to get the basic structure of his arguments. He'll offer, he'll steel man his opponent first in his objections, and then he'll offer sort of an authoritative word to support his own position. Then he'll offer his arguments for the position, and then he'll offer the reply to those objections at the front. If you look at that authoritative section, whenever he can get a scriptural citation, he'll always go for a scriptural citation. So uh, this is one uh, article, I can't remember exactly where this was, but he was talking about whether or not God um, has ordered the universe well, right? And it's like, okay, well, I guess we have to ask that question. And he, he, took a, um, he took a quote from the Book of Wisdom, um, which was, uh, you have numbered all, you, you have measured all things according to number, me, uh, measure, and weight, something like that. And it's from Jerome's Vulgate, obviously. Um, it's just like, yeah, when he wants to, to, to say something, when he wants to demonstrate something and argue something, his first authority he's always going to go for is, uh, is that argument uh, from faith, from scripture. Um, and so he really, um, you know, some people will accuse him of being rationalist because of the degree to which he employs uh, philosophy in his argumentation. And while I certainly think there are plenty of scholastics who fell into that rationalization trap, especially the farther and farther you get from the beginning of the scholastic project in about the ninth, 10th century, you know, once you get into like the 14th, 15th, 16th century, uh, I think theologians start getting a little too impressed with their own logic and uh, mm -hmm. they really start to lose that grounding in scripture. Um, and yeah, and a lot of people I would say like, I, I, that's one of the things that's always struck me about Aquinas is that, um, like sometimes he, you know, it's kind of like three categories. So he's always going to use the scholastic method. And so some things he'll, he'll say, listen, I can't logically prove this. I can't rationally prove this. So the Trinity would be one such thing, right? He can't, mm -hmm. he's like, I have no like natural theology that would give me this, right? Mm -hmm. This is, this is part of theology proper, right? The study mm -hmm. of God versus natural theology of what we know about God from what he's created. And so he says, like, I can't get from natural theology to something like the Trinity. I, I rely on scripture. That's a revelation, right? And he was totally comfortable with that. It's not like he, he was saying, like, he would, so what he would say about the Trinity is trying to prove that it's not illogical, that it's not irrational, that it works, but it has to be revealed. It's not something that I can prove, like, you know, kind of, I can prove God's existence in some aspects of God. I can, that's one that I can't prove. There are other ones that he says, well, both scripture reveals it and I can prove it. And there's some things that it's, you know, scripture doesn't reveal, but I can also prove, right? Rationally, I can I approach that. And that's a, it was a very, in some ways, it's a very humble way of approaching these problems, right? It's like to, to categorize them and say, well, listen, I'm not, it's not only, I can't, I can know more than what scripture says, um, but I can't prove everything scripture says rationally. And so I think that's where the rationalists went too far. And they're like, well, if it's in scripture, I need to be able to prove it rationally absent revelation. And, mm -hmm. and Thomas Aquinas does not go there. That is very clearly not what he believed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's what, just sort of a result yeah. of believing in one God as the author of all truth. Right. Um, and just having that firmly convicted inside your bones so much that it's like, well, of course, there's not going to be a contradiction between scripture and science. Right. Why would, yeah, why, why is that even a concern for you? Exactly. So like his, his task a lot of times was to, to try and say, listen, there's a mystery, but there's not a contradiction. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, mm -hmm. you know, kind of the way that I would sum up Thomas Aquinas's philosophy would be just that like good philosophy doesn't mm -hmm. reduce the mystery of God. Like it doesn't try to eliminate the mystery of God good philosophy gets reduced to the mystery of God. And, and yeah. like Aquinas really goes there. Like he's like, listen, I'm true. It's not contradictory, but it is a mystery. And he's totally comfortable sitting in that. It's a mystery. 
um, which is what I, I appreciate about them. And I, I don't like the reductive nature of the rationalist, nor do I like the mysticism of saying we can't know some things and like it doesn't matter, ignore contradictions and that kind of stuff. Like, like mm -hmm. Aquinas is trying to straddle that fence, which I appreciate. Yep. Um, so what were his major, you know, you mentioned, you know, scriptures being the top one. What are some of the other like systems of philosophy or people that were really big influences on Aquinas. Right, right. Well, just one last thing about scripture. Um, he wrote a ton of scriptural commentaries. Yeah. I remember reading, I can't remember what source it was, but they said that uh, nobody had written a treatise on Paul between, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans between like Augustine and um, Calvin or something. I don't, I don't know who was saying that, but who it's said like, that? no, yeah. no, no. <laughs> like, I, it, it's so obviously it wasn't anybody uh, that we're friends with. Because, well, that's the thing. Uh, that's another that. thing is I, I think that people don't understand how much he wrote either. I think that everyone's kind of like, they're, they're familiar that he wrote the Summa kind mm -hmm. of um, mm -hmm. and, and, and that kind of thing. But we don't realize that the Summa was like a primer for a larger philosophical system that he wrote extensively about. And he wrote commentaries on the Bible using that system. And you mm -hmm. like, it's within the context of that, then you like, you read the Summa and it makes sense. But if you just like the Summa is just kind of like a primer, it's like, here's some basics, but it, it right, goes way, it goes way deeper than that. Right. Cause the Summa is a genre. Right. right. Um, it's a genre wherein you cover everything contained within a single science, every topic. So, you know, lots of people had summas of theology. Right. Um, his is just the only one we remember because it's the best. It's the best. Yes. It's the best. <laughs> yep. Well, and then just before we get more into the sources, um, you know, I think the real genius of Thomas Aquinas comes from his ability to synthesize rather than to have bold new insights on his own. So I think yeah. if you'd had a fellow like um, Thomas Aquinas in, in the first centuries of uh, Christianity, he wouldn't have made near as much an impact because there was just less of those, uh, I don't want to say original, but I'm going to say original, uh, original thinkers, right? Like, you know, uh, St. Augustine just has this ability to take like a leap, a leap forward. Um, mm -hmm. And that's yeah. why he's so important. And the reason why I think St. Thomas Aquinas is such a um, powerful theologian is because he was able to understand what other people were writing and to be able to, to sew it together into a, a coherent whole. And so that's why it's so uh, fascinating to even just take a look at his influences, uh, his major influences. Um, and certainly we put um, scripture uh, at the top and then, um, and then, um, you know, the papal magisterium wasn't quite as um, codified at this time as it is in our, our, our modern time. Um, so he will uh, cite, um, you know, uh, papal bulls on occasion, but they don't, they don't play quite the same role as they do in Catholic theology today. Um, right. which I find very interesting and maybe is another conversation for another time. That would be interesting. Um, yeah. Um, so I think after scripture, um, St. Augustine's biggest contributor is, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas' biggest contributor is Augustine. Flip my A's around there. Um, he frequently is citing um, the De Trinitate, um, the uh, De Civitate Deis, uh, De Doctrina Christiane. Um, so all of his sort of major works, his commentary on the Psalms, which I think is probably underappreciated, but that's a huge source of theology for Thomas Aquinas is his commentary on the Psalms. It's a, it's a huge source of theology for Augustine too. Like, like that was, you know, to do commentary on all 150 Psalms, like that's quite the undertaking. And it, it's got sort of uh, doctrinal meditations in addition to, you know, uh, say spiritual meditations. They're not, uh, spirituality and theology weren't distinct uh, right. disciplines at that time. Um, and so uh, that gets a lot of Neoplatonic thought <laughs> built into St. Thomas Aquinas's thinking, right? Uh, the notion of participation is so present 
in St. Thomas Aquinas's thought that you can't even find it. It's just built into the structure of, yeah. uh, of, of the way he thinks and the way he speaks. And so I've got a, uh, an example here. I think I can get there pretty quickly. Right. So we're just going to go into the three modes of God's presence in creation, right? He's got, uh, he's present by power. He's present by his knowledge and he's present by his conservation in, uh, of all things in their continued existence. And further, uh, rational souls have the possibility of participation, participation by grace and for the soul of Christ himself, participation by uh, the hypostatic union. And so just, you know, the fact that he would even ask that question, how can God be present in all these ways, and then give such a thorough answer, is just sort of like a revelation of um, how thoroughly he was present, that, you know, even, you know, government's knowledge and, uh, and essence, what was that, conservation, um, that in itself is, has, has got participation built straight into the notion of creation and that how all uh, creation naturally reflects its creator in there. Um, and that also ties in with his notion of the analogy of being and well, how can we use uh, an analogous mode of predication to speak about God? Um, because uh, all effects uh, resemble their causes. And since we are an effect of God's creation, we can talk about him as our cause and the effect being reflected in the cause. So it's just, yeah. it's just like drilled into the structure of that. Um, so yeah, you get Augustine and also you certainly get uh, Dionysius, um, sometimes called Dionysius the Areopagite or uh, Pseudo-Dionysius since it probably wasn't actually the guy mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles. You know, it was right. probably a fifth century monk. Um, uh, both of those being heavily Neoplatonic um, philosophers. And then Boethius being too. able to... Boethius too would also be like... Boethius, a kind of, yeah. Yeah, Boethius would be uh, a, uh, a Neoplatonic uh, philosopher as well. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so all of that just getting uh, kind of baked into the structure of his thought... Um, while at the same time being able to avoid uh, the potential pitfalls of Neoplatonism, right? So that, uh, you know, somebody like uh, Plotinus would say that uh, creation emanates necessarily from God. And not only as a good Christian does uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, preserve the, the freedom of God in his creation, but also shows how that's less in keeping with scripture and the tradition and is a distortion of, you know, Neoplatonic thought then. Um, so anyway, it, it all just, it all just comes together. Uh, all just comes together. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, to that end, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier, like you don't know that he would have had, you know, you don't think that he could have had the kind of influence that he did. Um, if he had come, say, in the, the first, you know, 500 years or something, especially pre-Augustine. Um, there's, another, there's another big citation that he makes, and that would be Aristotle. And certainly, um, you know, a Western, um, you know, Catholic monk would not have had access to Aristotle's writings had he come too early. Um, because they were lost and it wasn't until, you know, Averroes and Maimonides, um, and then they eventually make their way back into the West. And, mm -hmm. and obviously, let's, let's talk about Aristotle a little bit, because that's another, like, gigantic way that it's a, it, the system of thought is so influenced by that. And that's how he uses, he marries the Neoplatonic thought with, like, the, more, the Christian scripture, right? Because you need a bridge there, because... Platonism doesn't work on its own, and Neoplatonism doesn't work if you're also mm -hmm. holding the scripture up. So let's talk. Can you talk a little bit about Aristotle and how that? Yeah, I just, I just one little thing there. I think um, Dionysius and Augustine did a lot of that synthesizing work already of uh, taking those Neoplatonic insights into the Christian tradition and then filtering out, you know, kind of the mm -hmm. more problematic aspects. Um, 
But yeah, Aristotle. So what was the big deal about Aristotle? Well, Aristotle, as you said, had been, um, you know, he hadn't been utterly forgotten in the West. Like they remembered that there was this student Aristotle, but a lot of his original writings have been forgotten. And moreover, uh, when they started to become reintroduced into the West, into the university systems, uh, it was a Latin translation of Averroes' Arabic commentary on Aristotle's Greek. Right. So, like, like, and it, so first off, it's coming from an Islamic philosopher, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Christendom and Islam weren't exactly on the best terms at that time. So right. it was automatically regarded with the hermeneutic of suspicion, um, not to be helped by, um, what was it, uh, Avicenna, who had the uh, mm -hmm. concept of the universal intellect, uh, right. so that, um, you know, individually humans would have a passive intellect, but the active intellect is all one in us. I was like, well, okay, like, how are we going to get to square that with the Judeo-Christian tradition? It doesn't really uh, happen. And so um, there was just this immediate tension in uh, the university systems in the Christian West uh, about, well, how do we regard Aristotle now? How do we regard Aristotle? And um, you could see kind of extreme reactions, you know, some people saying, no, Aristotle, we just, just kick him out. Right. We have Augustine, why do we need him? Um, mm -hmm. Other people, like uh, I think it was Sigur of uh, Brabant, um, started advocating for things like the universal active intellect. Uh, he's got him in trouble with the church authorities. Uh, got Thomas Aquinas attacking him. Um, so, so, you know, uh, no little controversy surrounding him. And it was sort of this uh, successful integration into this Christian Neoplatonic tradition that, um, you know, Albert the Great, he did a lot of work with that. He was uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas's uh, teacher and a uh, huge influence on him, which is sometimes um, not appreciated as much as it could have been. So Albert the Great was, was involved in this discussion too. And um, so his ability to and then there's Aristotelian doctrines, which were also problematic, like the eternity of the world, um, right. which uh, seems to contradict um, creation ex nihilo. And Thomas Aquinas was just sort of the masterful, you know, take these aspects of Aristotle's thought and find the real value, you know, in the, like a formal and material right? So the formal cause and the material cause and the four causes, that goes beyond just, you know, physics and how objects exist and the hylomorphic union and all that. That becomes sort of a transcendent category to the point where uh, Aquinas talks about in the Secunda Secundae how uh, charity becomes the form of all virtues. And it's like, well, okay, is it is it literally like a, a hylomorphic composition of this form and matter inside the human soul? Like, no, no, no. But it's, it, it's just that, that concept can become bigger than even what Aristotle had it as mm -hmm. uh, having a, a formal principle of something rather than just strictly a formal principle in a material object. Right. Um, and, and all sorts of um, uh, brilliant syntheses along that, um, along those lines. Uh, yeah, I mean, the eternality of the world is, I think, one of those um, one of those areas that, uh, kind of like the Trinity, where Aquinas, um, I think, you know, and even other Christians, earlier Christians, like, I think Origen um, might have thought that the, the world might be um, eternal as well. Um, and so, like, this was, this was, you know, clearly Aristotle thought that. Um, mm -hmm. And um, this is one of those areas, though, where Aquinas, um, basically went with like kind of the trendy model saying I can't prove that that's impossible right so Aquinas right, would actually right. Aquinas would actually uh, disagree with like William Lane Craig's Kalam cosmological arguments and that kind of thing like he would say no actually it is possible that the world um has existed forever his his version of of that kind of causation from God is is a vertical one not a horizontal one so it's not like the mm -hmm. dominoes falling and causing each one in time it's not a time-based mm -hmm. argument or, or even like a sequential cause like horizontally it's more like top down like what's holding this whole thing up causation mm -hmm. 
um, mm -hmm. that's his version of the cosmological argument. And so like, he would actually really disagree with William Lane Craig and, and the people that would like kind of misrepresent or, or use a different version of the cosmological argument. And also Bonaventure. And Bonaventure. Say that you yeah. could yeah, prove that the yeah. world was created so, in time. You know, whatever you, yeah, so, but it's, it is interesting that like, that, that is one of the other areas where Aquinas, like I can't rationally prove it, but clearly scripture teaches that creation mm -hmm. happened at a moment in time, right? And so he defers mm -hmm. to that and says that's not contradictory with anything else that I'm arguing. Um, or the mm -hmm. rational system, but I can't rationally build that case because I don't think mm -hmm. it's true. So it's a, it's a mm -hmm. type of intellectual honesty that I really appreciate in Aquinas too, mm -hmm. that he's not mm -hmm. trying to, he, he will not claim to be able to prove something that he can't prove, um, mm -hmm. which, which I think a lot of times goes, um, we don't do that a lot, right? A lot of times it's, I've got to, it's the rationalist like imperative, right? We have to logically prove everything from the bottom up. And Aquinas mm -hmm. is like, nope, can't do that. That's that's not yeah. possible. Um, but that's mm -hmm. fine because we have revelation, and it's consistent with everything else that we know. So right, right. Anyway, another major influence that I think a lot of people miss is uh, Saint Gregory the Great and his mm -hmm. commentary on Job, his moral commentary on Job. Um, that's all over the place, especially when you get into Thomas Aquinas's treatises on human nature. Yeah, like the whole notion of you know, like the 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 system of of virtues that he that he he lays out. Um, we've got the four cardinal virtues, and you can annex other virtues uh, underneath that. Um, and then you've got like the 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 daughters of of this virtue and the daughters of this vice, and all that. Ton of that comes from Saint Gregory the Great's uh, moral commentary on Job. I don't even know if that one's been translated into English recently. I, I don't I don't know either. I, I've never read it. I've seen you know, I've seen people I, I, I know in, in reading commentaries of Aquinas, um, they mentioned how much of an influence that is, but I've never actually read that. Um, I know like I think Jilson in his, you know, you know, his books on Aquinas, he talks about the influence, um, mm -hmm. but I've never actually read it. Um, I, yeah, I've, I don't even. Yeah, it, it's one of those things that like it's referenced, but never, never. Um, never actually cited in some ways, mm -hmm. which is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know, have you read it at all? No, no, I haven't, I haven't, you know, I haven't looked that hard. And then, um, and then the only copy I ever found in the library was the Latin original. Yeah. And, um, you know, I like, I've got decent Latin, but uh, <laughs> no, not unless you put me in a university to study yeah. this. Yep. I do think that's a, that's an interesting thing that like Aquinas did also come at a very interesting time when like a lot of these translations were like obviously he he knew Latin very well, but you also had you were starting to have better translations of Greek also mm -hmm. into mm -hmm. um, Latin, which really helped because that's one that is one of the things like Augustine was brilliant and had all these new ways of looking at things, but if you read Augustine, often he'll even say like my Greek's not that good. I don't really know what these people are talking about. And, uh, and so like, maybe they have a point. I don't know. Like, I mean, he'll yeah. literally say that sometimes, but Aquinas came at a time where that wasn't really necessary because you, you were starting to have better translations of some of the Greek, you know, not just mm -hmm. the scriptures, but, um, but, you know, things like Aristotle and, and all these other Greek thinkers, Boethius mm -hmm. and, and that kind of thing that, that, Aqu that Augustine just wasn't, um, wasn't privy to. Um, and did not himself speak Greek. I mean, he read Greek, but did not himself, you know, read it well enough to really understand the systems of thought um, mm -hmm. in ways that I think Aquinas could, which is why I think Aquinas was so good at synthesizing them um, mm -hmm. and, and why he was so good at that, because he, he had access to a lots of information that previous people did not. And he all like, it's one of those like God placed him right place, right time for him to do what he does best, which is mm -hmm. synthesize, I think. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so anything, uh, any other influences that you can think of? Um, those are the big ones. Um, he's really good at handling disputes between the church fathers too, mm -hmm. um, where he'll say, well, Ambrose said this and uh, Jerome said that and well I, I go with Jerome here for x y and z um right and so you'll get um you'll get arguments between the church fathers resolved in him um 
I think you'll get a lot of uh, distortions in Augustine. So uh, sometimes, you know, one of his objections will be something Augustine says, and then a misinterpretation underneath it, and he'll go ahead and, and clear it out. So uh, just being able to understand Augustine well was yeah. just like a huge step forward that saved him a whole bunch of problems. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, those are your big ones. Scripture, Augustine, Dionysius, St. Gregory the Great, Aristotle, and the other church fathers, whenever he can make an argument using them as his authority, uh, he will. Yeah. And it's only only in those places where he can't be firmly grounded in that, that he'll have to make his own um, arguments, basically. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so those are his influences. What do you think are, what are a couple of like key concepts or terms that Aquinas would use or like a Thomas like you or, or me might use um, that might get misinterpreted? Like what are the, the, the key like things that you need to understand about the Thomistic system um, in order to, to properly either critique it or defend it? Oh, uh, I don't have a quick answer for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I'll think, say, I think I'll, I'll give one that I find is that mm -hmm. the, the doctrine of analogy, right, mm -hmm. that, you know, is a really important one with him. Um, mm -hmm. And it's where the rationalists, you know, that they have a very different um, interpretation or a very different way of like viewing epistemology and knowledge and all this kind of stuff that, mm -hmm. you know, the difference between God and us is so great that any, like we know by analogy what God is like, but we don't have univocal knowledge of God. Um, mm -hmm. And God's knowledge is univocal. And this is very different than I think that most people um and our knowledge, not even of, of God, but just our knowledge in general, we, we know by analogy, essentially. Um, mm -hmm. Not that it's not true knowledge, it's not equivocal knowledge, but it's, you, it's, an, it's analogous. Um, right. And so when we talk about God being the Father and the Son and, and these kind of things, like we're using analogies because we have to. So it's, mm -hmm. it's necessary in our everyday life just to know things, but it's, it's really necessary for God. And so... If, like one of the mistakes I think people often make is they try and use like what we what we see things happening like here with like me and you and whatever and then we reason up to God and say God's exactly like that right mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, as opposed to the other way around saying mm -hmm. well no we're participating you know analogously in what is God's like but it's mm -hmm. never the same as what God is and so God's mm -hmm. knowledge of himself logos is very different than my knowledge of myself right and and especially the knowledge the univocal knowledge of um of a being who is pure being is like now now we're talking about something very different and you can't apply human categories to god in that way um mm -hmm. and and strictly apply them in a rationalist sense so i think that mm -hmm. i think analogy is one of the one of the key concepts that you have to get about aquinas especially when he's talking about his theology proper what is god like um it's it's uh it's really important so that's one that i think is an important concept that we we've, we've lost in some way Especially because uh, he he points out different types of analogies and say this one works and these don't. Uh, right. Yep. <laughs> um, and then it's all contained in a uh, question called the uh, the names of God. You know, which if you're looking mm -hmm. to study analogy, might not be the right. first <laughs> first place you'd go looking. Um, yeah, and this may like some names can be applied to all the persons of the Trinity, and some are properly applied to one person of the Trinity. And so, like again, like it's. It, it's a really important concept and it kind of just like percolates throughout his theology. Um, so that's one for me. Um, you, you think of any, I, I, I can think of, you know, uh, causation is one, uh, you know, uh, yeah. The difference between event causation and, uh, uh ontological causation and the right. difference between those notions. Um, I mean, that's huge because, in a Thomistic system and an Aristotelian system, and probably for most of the ancients, mm -hmm. uh, their notion of causality was was primarily objective, right? So they would they would think of it if they were thinking uh, thoroughly as reality being communicated between different objects, right? And there was some 
perfection that this object was uh, giving to this object or this, you know, they would think of it all out there. Whereas if you start looking at David Hume, his, at least his method for approaching causality is sort of um, inside out, right? Yeah. So he's like, look, we can't observe reality at its core uh, causing things. So all we can do is make mental associations. Yeah, um, we, we, we infer um, causation. Mm -hmm. We don't observe it. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and Aquinas would be like, well, okay, but like, okay, I get it. All knowledge begins in the senses, but it's, it's obviously there, you know, right. so yeah. your entire project is, is wrong. Yeah. Right. And, and also uh, we should point out also that another thing that, that I'm, I'm constantly pushing back on is um, the idea that just because we have a material kind of human description of the, of a causal event, um, doesn't mean um, that it doesn't prove that there's not like a teleological or final cause or, you know, there, there's not a formal cause and those kind of things. And, and in fact, um, Aquinas or Aristotle would say, well, um, I would expect there to be a material and efficient cause. Those are always present. So you, you giving me the material and efficient causes and saying, listen, I can even describe them mathematically in no way undermines, like they would say, actually, I'm wrong if you can't do that. Um, yeah. And so you're, you're not actually answering, you're not actually objecting in a way that's outside and it's a misunderstanding of the system to think, oh, so now that I can describe gravity, there's no telos to the rock falling or something like that. And then that's something that I, I even see really good philosophers. I won't name names, but people who have seen the videos probably know what I'm talking about. Like people who have PhDs and teachers at, and professors at universities make that argument. Be like, well, this removed telos from the world. You're like, no, it didn't. Not for Aristotle and Aquinas, that would actually be very much uh, expected what you're saying. Um, and, and that's why other, other men like Kepler um, very much still believed in like, no, I'm, I'm actually thinking the thoughts of God after him whenever I describe these things mathematically. It's not as if like, oh, I'm reducing and I'm removing meaning or telos from the world or anything else like that. So that teleological causation and that kind of stuff is, is another area that I think that people like our modern conception is very different than what they had and ours is, is reductive, but I don't think it's necessary. And it's certainly not, an, it's certainly not a reply to them. It's not an objection that they would find troubling. They would look at you mm -hmm. and be like, well, yeah, of course, like good for you. You're good at math. That doesn't take away the ontological causation that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then it's, it's also kind of a reduced notion of what event causality or what causality is, is because you know, if you, if you go deep enough into the uh, Aristotelian rabbit hole, you'll find out that efficient causality and final causality are almost two sides of the same coin. Right. Because every efficient cause is operating towards a specified end. Right. Right. And yeah. that that's not even like a scientific question right there. That's like so embedded in the scientific worldview that they can't even see it anymore right. that you could separated out anyway right um, well, and, and and similarly the like material and formal cause are almost like two uh two sides of the same coin as well because like prime matter is just chaos right it's not it's not anything in itself. it's not intelligible it's not um it, it's it's just a so like you you like you always have the material and the fight like those are also two sides of the same coin so it like it it can become, you know, I think Aquinas did a really nice job of kind of like melding them together and saying these are all present and um, you're not getting rid of them. So that's one. I don't know, potent, potency and act, um, I think, are, are interesting concepts that we've kind of um, lost. Um, I don't know if people, if you find that people don't really understand what we mean by like potency and act. Right, right. Well, yeah. Uh... What about potency and act? So those are sort of more general categories for Aquinas um, that um, potency and act aren't actually their own um, their own binary, but they describe a lot of other binaries. Mm -hmm. So like form and matter. Um, well, form is the active principle and matter is the passive principle, you know, essence and existence. Well, form, uh, ess the essence is the formal principle and existence is the material principle. 
soul and body. The soul is the active principle and the body is the uh, potent principle. Getting a little mixed up here. Um, Yeah, and um, you know, when I was first learning these things, um, I was like, okay, well, what does prime matter? You know, just unconsciously, I'm a 19 year old. I've never studied any philosophy before. I was like, okay, what's prime matter like? And I just sit there and I start trying to think about what prime matter is like. And it's like, you know, like, you know, a few years after that, that exercise, um, it was like, no, the prime matter doesn't actually exist. It's nope. a substrate on which other forms impose their reality on. Yeah, it's um, the earth, it's the earth was formless, right? Yeah. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters, which represent chaos, right? It's not something in itself. It's, you can't you can't describe it because you can't uh, how can you be how can you know it if it has no form you're informed by the you know what it is and there's nothing there so prime matter is yeah it's the substrate it's the chaotic substrate and so we can think about it abstractly but you can't uh we can describe i guess it's one of those things where we can describe what it's not um, but you can't describe what it is really like because it's it, not it's not anything <laughs> yeah it's not anything what yeah. is prime matter? Yeah. <laughs> it's a theory. It's a being right. of reason. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. It's a being of reason. Yeah. 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 Um, any other major uh, topics that you wanted to, to chat about, about the primer of Aquinas? I know that you and I are, are working on, uh, you know, kind of um, to try and uh, see if we can explain why we don't think that the Trinity and divine simplicity are actually contradictory. Um, anything, any, any interesting, any important thing that you want to, to kind of, uh, prime that discussion? Mm-hmm. Oh, to prime that discussion. Um, yeah, any concepts or anything like that, that you think would be helpful? I mean, I think we're going to dive into the concept of relation as an accident. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, I think we're going to spend a lot of time there. Uh, just something I think is very important to know about St. Thomas Aquinas isn't just the fact that he was really, really, really smart. Um, that he's also a saint, that he was also a man of discipline. He was a man of extraordinary charity to uh, to everyone around him. Um, you know, uh, and just a little, there's a little evidence of that was... Um, how much time he would spend writing letters to people. All sorts of people would write him letters. And whenever he could, he would write them back. And even if they were uh, sort of, you know, like not very intelligent letters, he'd always give them a thoughtful response. And that's not something that um, somebody who's too big for the britches is going to do. You know, they're just going to throw the fan mail out. Um, And really... um, he was quite the mystic too, you know, we get all these stories about, uh, and I think they're true stories of, you know, the crucifix speaking to Thomas, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that vision of whatever he had where he declared all his writings were straw. And and the idea that it it's not like, you know, you could think of, a lot of people would think of holiness as A, immediately meaning being boring, um, which is just a, an absolute caricature. Uh, and then B as sort of um, being contradictory with with uh, intelligence, right? Because our, our sort of model for intelligence in the modern West is the skeptic, the questioner, mm-hmm. sort of the rebel who's so smart that he can see through the lies. Right. Um, and it, it's hard for us as 21st century people to see the faithful man as being an icon of of the intellectual life. But that's really what Thomas Aquinas was able to bring together was, you know, you could say a simple faith with a very subtle mind and and being able to parse things out precisely. Um, And that there was really something, you know, his experience of being a Christian, his experience of receiving the sacraments, of celebrating Mass himself, of chanting the Psalms in choir with his other Dominicans, 
uh, it's all of these, these, this very, ex his, his very experience of Christ's redeeming power in his life as being what took him from just being an above average logician, like say Peter of Abelard or uh, Peter the Lombard, uh, neither of whom would be canonized saints, but made important contributions to theology, uh, really gave it that, that um, the soul of his theology, really the form of his theology was all bound up in his love of God and love of neighbor. And how when he says that, you know, the Christian perfection consists in love of God and love of neighbor. It's not just an idea for him. It was something he was able to consistently live out throughout the entirety of his life. And that's what gives uh, him in his Summa and all his scripture commentaries that, that ineffable, ineffable way of speaking that's just captivating. And, and I think that's what keeps on calling people deeper and deeper into Thomas Aquinas is just, you know, uh, the man and the writings are just consistent. That's all yeah. love of God, love of neighbor, uh, when you get down to the bottom of it. Yeah. So uh, Luke on the Discord uh, often, uh, you know, he, he just had a, a chat with Paul. And so he was he was laying out his, um, you know, uh, proposition of knowledge is, um, is potential knowledge is the way that he described it. And I don't know if I would... I, 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 I'm trying to think of a better word than potential knowledge because it makes it seem like it's not, it's fake or something like that. So I, I right. think that it's like, I think that word like is connoting something that, that I don't think Luke is intending. Um, but I do think that there's, there is a certain truth to the fact that living out the thing, like the propositional knowledge is a type of, is a type of knowledge in itself that can't just be, it's deeper than like it, it takes on a new life. Like if Jesus could, if Jesus just said the things that he said, but didn't do the things that he did, uh, would we think of him the same way? Right. right. So it's, it's both. And that's the thing I, I agree. And I, to me, at least, I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a Stan, so that's fine. Um, but to me, even reading Aquinas, you get that, you get that feeling that this is not someone like he will, he will just completely nuke some arguments and that kind of stuff. But you never, mm -hmm. you always get the the feeling that he is like he's the original guy who straw manned, right? That was what he or uh, steel man um, mm -hmm. arguments, mm -hmm. right? He was trying to faithfully represent what people were saying and point mm -hmm. out where things were right and wrong, but he never used excessive force in doing it. He would always mm -hmm. like you could tell that he knew that there were people on the other end of this, and and honestly, in ways that uh, Augustine sometimes didn't. Um, <laughs> like Augustine, well, Augustine was, was a bishop. Yeah, Augustine you have to keep was, people in line. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes Augustine was, I feel like, harsher than maybe he should have been or could have been. Mm -hmm. But then again, mm -hmm. he's in a different time where you you kind of need some nukes, some heretics, I guess. But yeah. Um. But but the, the, there was a there's a even though like the the critiques are so incisive, like they're so sharp and just like devastating. Mm -hmm. The tone in which they're written is such that makes you think that this there there's a person on the other end of this who loves even the person that he's dismantling um mm -hmm. which i find very interesting right like he's not trying to um he's not trying to uh he's not trying to be you know arrogant or you know evil or, or anything like he's trying to get things right instead of be right um mm -hmm. and uh that's one of the reasons i was like you know honestly uh he's one of those guys where if I always like wonder like what the people who actually made some of the arguments that made it into his objection one, objection two, whatever. Mm -hmm. I will always wonder whether or not they were flattered to even be mentioned. Like, you know, because <laughs> like, it, like in retrospect, at least like he wasn't, you know, like you said, he grew in popularity over time, but in retrospect, Hey, if you made something that was as big of an argument that Aquinas even bothered to deal with it, I was like, I'll take that as a compliment. I, I hope to have a bad argument one day. That's worth his attention yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least you said something new yeah exactly yeah you're and not just retreading like, old okay. ground okay and that reminds me that it's one of those things that um the closest i've ever got to that was um i, you know, I did a little bit of, of work with alvin plantiga um mm -hmm. uh, back when i was writing my thesis and so that's that is one of the things that like the nicest compliment i ever got from plantiga was that's not a completely stupid um argument 
Um, <laughs> so I'm like, oh, that's high praise. That's high praise yeah. coming from Alvin. Um, so like, you know, I, I would love to be nuked by Aquinas one day, maybe yeah. when we're heaven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it could be a lot of fun. Could be a lot of fun. Yeah. Might be harder when you're having a direct intellectual vision of God Himself, but that's true. The beatific vision might might make it so I can't make that arguments anymore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe he's writing one. Uh, maybe he's just looking down and saying, "Oh, okay. I'm just noting all the ways the trip goes wrong." Be like, "Here's here's where you went wrong there." But yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, this was fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, stay tuned, everyone. If you're interested in um, these kind of topics, we will uh, respond to the letter wiki of Sam, um, you know, pretty soon. And, um, and then we'll go from there. We'll see how many more of these we do. There's a lot of yeah. topics to talk about, but uh, this is fun for me. Thanks. All right. Th fun for me too. Thanks for having me on. Yep.